Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Proverbs and to the third chapter this evening, Proverbs chapter 3. If you're using a church Bible, it's on page 637. Proverbs chapter 3, and we come to uh, what is really the third of a series of father-son talks uh, that Solomon has recorded for us in the early chapters of the book of Proverbs, uh, perhaps remembering uh, what his own father said to him. Um, so, although these are not the Psalms of David, uh, for all we know, they may be in their original form, the talks of David. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them round your neck. Write them on the tab tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom He loves, as a father the son in whom He delights. These model father-son talks that we find in the early chapters of the book of Proverbs may remind some of you, perhaps those of you who are especially of an older generation, of the words of your father or your mother. And this particular talk is probably the one that you remember your mother or father saying to you, now you must always remember or if they were of a more negative cast, now Sinclair, I'm giving it away here, you must never forget. And when they said that, they were wanting you to highlight what they were teaching you. They were wanting to teach you that there are principles that you would find recurring again and again in life. And uh, since in an older generation, parents were usually uh, somewhat wise. They wanted to teach you to think and live from first principles. They understood that life is not one of those chocolate bar machines that you sometimes still see where you put the money in the slot, you choose whatever you want, and if the money goes in, and somehow or another the machine is still working, your chocolate bar comes out. The book of Proverbs is not a machine that spits out uh, answers to every situation. The Proverbs are uh, made up of these pictures that grab our imagination, as we've been seeing, in order to touch our affections, in order to direct our wills, so that we can have experience before we have the experiences, and we can apply the picture and the principles to all kinds of situations. And here in Proverbs chapter 3, the father is anxious to emphasize to his son some of the biggest principles of a happy life, of a good life, of what the Bible regards as a godly life. There are two passages in the 
opening books of the Bible that, in a way, summarize the Bible's whole message. Uh, the first is what we call the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one God, and you shall love Him with all your heart and your soul and your strength. And then there is another word, because God's people are conscious of how far short we fall of perfect love for Him, and that is the word that the high priest was told to pronounce upon the people once the great annual sacrifice to atone for their sins had been made, and he would come out and pronounce what we call the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord turn His face towards you, and the Lord give you peace. And you'll notice that that blessing is reflected in what the Father is saying to His Son in chapter 3. Do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and shalom. That is not, first and foremost, what we call peace in our hearts. Shalom is the well-being of our whole lives. Shalom is the bringing of our lives into a right relationship with God, the beginning of the transformation of our lives so that we begin to reflect God. Shalom is living out the first answer to the first question of the catechism. What are we for? We are for shalom. That is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And ultimately, of course, that is what the Bible views here as the good life. And here is a father who is imitating the heavenly father, and he wants to draw his children into the vision of the good life, of the shalom life, of poise and dignity and confidence in God, and love for others, and the fulfillment of a desire to know and serve the Lord, and to find a fellowship with His people that can be found nowhere on earth, in which strangers who will come into the community, the old covenant community as well as the new covenant community, uh, although they cannot understand the first principles that create this, they see for the first time in their lives relationships as they were meant to be, lives as they were meant to be lived, children, parents, elderly people being treated as God intended them to be treated. And it's very interesting that uh, the very thing Paul later says to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6 is beautifully illustrated in this chapter. One might almost think that Paul had derived what he says from this chapter. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is the first commandment with promise. And fathers, do not irritate your children. Now, there's a, there's a hidden connection here that emerges actually way back here in Proverbs chapter 3, and it's this. The father telling his children that his children have to obey him can be profoundly irritating to the children. So, how does the Father encourage that kind of obedience? And you notice He's doing it here in chapter 3, verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching. And the Father here gives us this beautiful illustration of how that is to be done. And it's fairly obvious in this passage. On the one hand, it's a series of commands, a series of imperatives. Uh, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways acknowledge Him. 
Honor the Lord with all your wealth. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. These are imperatives. These are commandments that are given by the Father to the Son. So, what is He doing here that means these commandments do not irritate the Son? Well, it's fairly obvious, isn't it? He's giving Him reasons for the commands. He's giving Him promises in these commands. And you'll see if you read through this passage, preferably out loud, the Bible was written not to be read to yourself, but to be read out loud. And it's always the best way to read the Bible, to read it out loud. If you read it out loud to yourself, you'll notice that all of these exhortations are grounded in promises that are given. It's as though the Father is holding out to His Son what I've called the good life. And all of these commands are teaching the Son the pathway of that good life. Walk in this way because it's in this way that all these treasures are to be found. And so, as you read this passage out loud, you find words like for, do this for, because, or do this and so, or do this and, or do this and it will be, or do this then, this will happen, or do this because these things are true. And so, while the book of Proverbs to the outsider who doesn't read the Bible with faith or looking for faith, uh, and that actually has included many readers of the book of Proverbs who simply think this is a kind of uh, long list of things that you should do, if you don't have faith and don't see faith, then all, all these Proverbs are is a bunch of irritating commands. But once you see that every command that God gives to His children is rooted in His promises, once you see that every imperative is given to us because God has grounded that imperative with His saving grace, then not only do the commands not irritate you at all, but you see that the commandments are the pathway to the blessing. They are the, the house in which the blessing is enjoyed. And this is further underlined by something uh, that if you look uh, down at the passage, you'll see fairly readily that the references to God in these verses characteristically are references to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. And when you see that in the New International Version, the Church Bible, or uh, the English Standard Version that I'm using, that's the signal the translators and the publishers are giving to us that the word that lies behind Lord here is the covenant name of God, Yahweh what used to be translated Jehovah. It's the God who has bound Himself to His people and bound His people to Himself. It's the God who has redeemed them. It's the pattern we actually find in the, ten, in the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's because I am the Lord who has bound you to Myself who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, delivered you, redeemed you, saved you. It's because that's who I am. Therefore, does not it clearly follow you should have no other gods before me? Does it not clearly follow that the life I want to bring you into is the good life? Do you not understand that I, if I have redeemed you, my desire is to bless you. And do you not understand that if you do not walk with me and towards me and behind me, 
you will walk away from the blessings that I intend to give you. And so, all of this is suffused with an amazing sense of the sheer goodness of God, that as a redeemed person, He's calling me to live a redeemed life. Or to put it this way, as a son in this family, He's calling me to the family lifestyle. And here the father wants to emphasize to his son how good, how blessed this family lifestyle is. And we can sum up his exhortations to his son, I think, in four basic statements. The first in verses 3 and 4, that our first response to the covenant Lord, when we when we come to know Him as our covenant Lord and Savior, the first response is to love the Lord. And he uses this very common expression, often used of the Lord Himself. In verse 3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And of course, you're almost bound to ask the question, whose steadfast love and faithfulness is he speaking of here? Is he saying, don't let the steadfast love of the Lord and His faithfulness forsake you? Hold on to Him? Or is he saying, show steadfast love and faithfulness in your response to Him? Well, the answer is yes, isn't it? It's only because of the first that the second is possible. So here he's, he's bringing his son into this fellowship with the God who has shown covenant love. And he's saying to him, like father, like son, you have been shown covenant love. You have seen the faithfulness of the Lord. He has never let you down. He's kept His longest standing promises. He's kept His most difficult promises to you. Now you express that godliness in your life because that's part of the good life. The good life is the godlike life. And He goes on to speak about this. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. You need to bind them around your neck, and you need to write them on the tablet of your heart, which means you need to take hold of the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. And then you need to express the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. And alas, we are now in a season of history when love has become an emotion. But in the Bible, love is a decision, whatever your emotion. Love is a decision. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, the steadfast love of the Lord calls you, my son, to a major decision you have to make about whether you are going to seek to be like your heavenly Father or not. It's not something that happens by accident. Spiritual growth does not happen by accident. It happens through the decisions that we make, the, the choices that we make day by day. Uh, here we see somebody who is in great need. Uh, we are told to bind steadfast love to ourselves. On what basis are we going to show steadfast love to that person who is in need, whom we find angular and difficult? Not emotion, but decision. Decision that's based on our sense that that's where we are by ourselves in relationship to God. And He has shown steadfast love to us. And as we are bathed, immersed in that steadfast love, we are called by God's Word to express that steadfast love to others. And you notice what He says this leads to, so. So, what will that lead to? It's very interesting, isn't it? This will lead to favor and good success 
in the sight of God and man. Now, this is one of the reasons I say the Proverbs are not a chocolate bar machine that you put one thing in and you're guaranteed to get one thing out. Actually, maybe they are like chocolate bar machines because you may put one thing in and get absolutely nothing out. That is to say, there are malfunctions in chocolate machines and there are malfunctions in the world. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is… This is generally true, and as believers, we mustn't lose sight of it in the sense that we have that the world is all against us, that this godly life produces favor. That is to say, it produces a sense in people that there is something possessed by believers that is enviable, that they themselves do not possess, and that draws them to a decision, which is either to love it and pursue it, or to hate it and destroy it. So, we should not imagine that what he means by favor is that we will become flavor of the month, but that there will be characteristics about our lives that are undeniably desirable, even if for some people the cost of drawing to Christ and discovering that for themselves is far more than they're willing to bear. And over the years, as we have established relationships with people, that will become more and more obvious to them and perhaps even to us. We may not see this when we are young. That's the point of him teaching his son when he is young. You may not see this when you are young. It's not obvious to you, but it's the promise of God, and His promises have never failed. So, he says, the love of the Lord leads to good success. So, that really raises the question, isn't it? What do you think good success is? What do you think good success is at the end of the day? What what does it amount to? Um, Does it amount to something described in worldly terms? That is, material things, positions in life. Uh, how far you climb up the ladder. Uh, what, what is it that's really important to you? That, that's what it is. What is this good success? Well, what is good success in Bibles, in the Bible's terms? Good success in the Bible's terms is, you know, God is smiling on your life. And when God is smiling on your life, Everything else that man, woman counts as success can be seen, to use the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, as so much trash to be taken out. So, this is the first thing, to love the Lord. And then with it, this is not an alternative to loving the Lord. It's not an addition to loving the Lord. It's part and parcel of loving the Lord is to trust in the Lord, verse 5 to 8 trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. I mean, if you know any words of Proverbs off by heart, these are probably among them, among the most famous words in the book of Proverbs. What does this mean to trust in the Lord? One of the old, you'll need to ask Will Trago about this. One of the older uh, etymologists, a man interested in the study of words, a Hebrew scholar, actually suggests because of some little indications in the use of the verb here, that actually underneath the whole idea of trust in this context is that you prostrate yourself in the dust before someone. You prostrate yourself in the dust before someone. That is to say, and and you can see why, even if that's 
at the end of the day proven by someone somewhere in a dusty ivory tower in some ancient university not to be the right nuance, you can understand why he has drawn that conclusion, because actually that's what trust is. Trust in another is the abandonment of my trust in myself. It is my, it is my entire giving over to my, of myself to another. That's full trust, and in a sense, that's what trust in the Lord is. It is that I am prostrate before Him, on the ground, in the dust. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's trust in Him, isn't it? It is the abandonment of trust in self in order to depend on another. I have, uh, I have a DVD at home that I bought. I don't buy many DVDs, but I've got a DVD at home of a documentary called Into Great Silence. It's a documentary made of a monastery in the French Alps, a Carthusian monastery. Carthusian monks live in cells, and they basically live isolated lives together in a community. And this documentary has very few words in it. It's almost three hours long. Uh, and in the middle of it, there are two novices who are taking their final vows. And you'll have seen something like this on television. Men in their thirties who are absolutely abandoning the world, absolutely abandoning the world, and they are prostrate, face down, uh, in the chapel, the one place where the monks will gather together several times a day uh, to chant the psalms and to pray, and they are absolutely prostrate and they are giving up everything, everything. Now, if you're a good Protestant, you despise that, and you would be very unwise to despise it, because if Jesus asked you to do that, to give up everything, absolutely everything, we were singing about that this morning very cheerfully, let goods and kindred go, goods, kindred, this mortal life also the body they may kill, etc. We, were, we sang that with great gusto this morning. But, you know, when you watch people do that, if you've any sense of sensitivity, the thing it does to you is it begins to, begins to reveal to you the things that stick to your life like superglue, that you only realize are stuck there when, when somebody wants to take it out of your hand. You know what happens, don't you? You know, many of you have children, you know, give it to me. And you give it to me, and there's a battle, and another battle. And uh, that's such a picture of the spiritual life, isn't it? Um, we loftily despise people who have gone into the desert to be monks because they should be living in the world, and, and we don't realize uh, that, uh, was it Tennyson that wrote, the world is too much with us, and we trust in it, in our position, trust in our brains, trust in the good track that we've got for financial success in the job that we have. But you see, trust in the Lord is saying, I have nothing and I am nothing, but now I am yours because you are everything and you have everything and you've promised to give me everything that I need. And you see, the reason you're able to do that is because of the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. How can you possibly do that? That sheer madness in the eyes of the world. 
know if I've ever mentioned a, a letter I wrote in ye ancient days when there was an evening newspaper in Glasgow. I read a letter written in by a desperate mother. Will somebody please tell my daughter, first person in the family tree who's ever gone to university, got a university degree, and she's going to be a missionary? Someone please tell her she's wasting her life. She's wasting her education. Oh, well, we can piously say somebody should have told that mother Jesus has called us to do anything, go anywhere for Him. That's trusting Him until we ask ourselves whether we're prepared to go anywhere and do anything for the Lord Jesus. And uh, you see steadfast love bound around our necks leads, says, the Father to a trust in the Lord that means, now notice what it means negatively, that we stop leaning on our own understanding. And my, how much we do this. I was watching an interview recently with Andrea Scholl, whose name will be familiar to those of you who don't spend your time watching heavy metal DVDs and things like that. He is he's probably the greatest countertenor singer in the world. That means he sings as though his voice had never broken. And he has a fabulous, fabulous voice. And he has, uh, for someone who is such a great singer, an, an interesting modesty, both in presentation in public, but also when he talks about his art. And in this interview, he was, he was talking about the development of the voice, and he said what I thought was a very interesting thing, because it happens in so many spheres of life. He said the great danger for the really outstanding young singer is that he falls in love with his own voice. That's what narcissism is, isn't it? You fall in love with how you view yourself. And we do, don't we? So, so, why should he emphasize this? Well, there are two reasons. One is, this is, a, this is a very common thing when we're young, if we've got gifts. We fall in love with our gifts. Hey, you... you in my, you know, in my trade, you meet people who love teaching the Bible. And so, they think they're called to the ministry because that's where you get to teach the Bible. But that's what they love. They don't love the people that they're teaching. They, they, don't, they don't want to bring the Bible with love on their knees to the people. What they want to do is teach the people. I've had people coming to me elsewhere in churches saying, if I join your church, can I teach a Sunday school class? Meaning an adult Sunday school class, meaning preferably one of the big, maybe 200 people, if I join your church. Because I love teaching, and that's my gift. The question of whether you love people is irrelevant because you've fallen in love with your own voice. You've fallen in love with your own gifts. You're trusting in your own understanding of who you are. And because it takes so long for us to find out who we really are, it's especially a challenge to us when we're young. And here's another reason why he says these very serious, important things to his son when his son is young. My dear young friends, it's because now as an elderly man, I'm able to say this, if you don't deal with them when you're younger, they'll come back to haunt you when you're older. They don't just go away. They return. They're sleeping. So, this is this is heavy, isn't it? But look, it's heavy, but it's based on great promises. 
in all your ways acknowledge Him, Him first, Lord. Lord, You first, You first. Forget about me. You first. And He will make your path straight. Isn't that something? Um, is your path straight? You know, the way ahead. Is your path straight? Uh, could it be that the way ahead is not straight because you're trusting in your own understanding? And that's why you can't work it out. And he's saying this, look, when, when you trust in the Lord, He will make the path straight. Yes, actually, what He may do is say to you, as it were, now, I think I need to test that trust you profess. So, it's going to be dark for a little while so that you understand you're trusting entirely in me. But my path is straight. And you may say to him, as some of us looking back on our lives, if we described our lives, we would say, boy, they've been, they've been zigzag, 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 zigzag. No, that's because we are half blind. His path has been straight. But the only way that you will be on that path is if you trust Him with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. So, we're being summoned here, first of all, to the love of the Lord. We're being summoned, secondly, to trust in the Lord. And then we're being summoned, thirdly, to honor the Lord. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. What has that got to say to the people Jack visited? That thought cross your mind? Oh, this business about plenty. You know, every so often you meet a Christian who asks that question in order to defend themselves against God's summons to them. What about these people? What about these people? And God's Word answers, once, once you've dealt with this yourself, I'll tell you about these people. Of course, this is, a, this is what we might call, this is a middle class, this is actually an upper class world, okay? So, how important is it to you that your vats will be bursting? Totally irrelevant to you whether your vats are bursting or not, whether your barns are full, because you don't have either. Well, most of you don't have either barns or vats. You need to understand that you, you transpose these principles into the life that you live. And, and what's being said here is essentially this. When you give your best to the Lord, He will make sure that there is something you have that you can give to others. That's the principle. When you give your best to the Lord, there's something you have that you'll be able to give to others. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. This is, this is very challenging, I think. That means when, uh, when you find out when you graduate what the salary is going to be, or when you get a raise, if you get a raise, first question, how am I going to honor the Lord with this? That's the very first question. The first question is not how much will be left that I can decide from that what I will do with it, because none of it is yours. It's all the Lord's. So, my first question is how do I honor the Lord with my wealth, not with my loose change, but with my wealth? What priority do I give to Him? How can I do that wisely? And that's a challenge, isn't it? A, a number of years ago, I can't remember when, but it was one of those years when at the turn of the year, everybody who knew anything about, uh, about trading and finances knew it was likely to be a bad year for their business. 
And in the church I was in, I remember the, the church administrator coming to me, which he did regularly, but he did not disclose financial matters to me. But he mentioned uh, an elder in the church, he said, came to me this morning with his givings for the entire year. And he said to me, I think it's going to be a bad year, and I wanted to be sure I would put first things first and not be tempted to compromise. So the money was in the church's bank. That sure would help our treasurer, incidentally. <laughs> but that's how we're called to live. And, and not only with your, with your wealth notice, but with the first fruits of all your produce. You see the emphasis here? It's, it's not a, a now uh, make sure you honor the Lord and, uh, and uh, just gather up the gleanings. No, it's the first fruits. Uh, it, is, he, is He really first? Or when we talk about this, it's easy, it's easy enough to talk about this, but when, when, when you and I together are under this and we reflect on it, we we discover all kinds of super glue, don't we? You know, business manager in the seminary I, I taught and said to me one day, is it, is it true what I hear about Scots? I knew something really bad was coming. He, yes, he was an American. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I hear Scottish people's arms are so short they can't reach their wallets. That's not true of all Scottish people, but is it true of you? God's arm is not shortened that it cannot save, but my arm may be shortened that it cannot give. And that is a challenge, isn't it? About the lifestyle, the level of lifestyle I choose. What's the first principle of the level of lifestyle I choose? Is it actually focused upon me, upon us? or upon Him, and therefore upon them. And you see, if this is built in, if this is built in when we are young, uh, train up the child in the way the child should go, and when they're older, it's a general principle. They won't depart from it. And you see that in the generations. And, and this is why what happens to us when we are young Christians what we build in when we are young Christians is foundational to everything that will happen when we are older Christians. You know, we imagine when we are students that it will, we'll have so much more time and it will be so much easier to do almost everything once we're out of here and we've got a job and there's money, but actually nobody finds it that way. And so, He's calling us to honor the Lord. It's a matter of priorities, love and trust and honor, and then yield. And you'll notice the context of the yielding in verses 11 and 12, these words that are quoted, aren't they, in, Proverbs, in Hebrews chapter 12, "'My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof.'" For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son whom he delights. Now, here is the immediate balance to any screwy notion that what is being promised here is health, wealth, and happiness. Because he's saying there are going to be trials, it's going to be difficult. There are times when you'll be sore. That's the way. That's the way of God. And this marvelous balance. And you see, it's, he doesn't stop and spell this out systematically. He builds it into the way he teaches so that his son realizes that, yes, God will, within my little world, he will prosper me so that I may serve others. But at the same time, I will go through times of difficulty because that's the way it is for us in the world. So, what are we to do when things are sore? Well, he says, you see, we need to we need to look past the immediate cause of our situation to the hand of God and to the way in which He places His hand upon us to 
remind us of our sinfulness and our, and our need, and we do need to do that. You know, sometimes when I've been unwell, um, which I haven't been too often, you know, I get down. You know, the flu gets you down, and you're a bit melancholic, and uh, you, you feel your sin. It's what you feel. You feel more of a sinner when you've got the flu than when you're singing God's praises in church, don't you? And you say, I feel such a sinner. And people come along and they say, you know, it's just because you're sick. No, it's not just because you're sick. It's because you are a sinner. And yes, you, you, you mustn't allow yourself to be pressed down by the evil one, but you also need to understand that everything that, that causes friction in your life, the hand of God is behind it. And you need to understand, which we do not naturally understand, that He's doing this as a Father because He loves us. As Hebrews says, it's actually proof positive that we really are His children, that He disciplines us. Now, that's pretty countercultural, isn't it? You love your children today, you don't discipline them. The reason you don't discipline them is because you're, you're frightened of them. You don't know how to parent them. You're lost for principles. You're awash with what the world says, and you're terrified that you're going to lose them if you say no to the little darlings. Well, God has got much better wisdom Himself than that when He rears His children because He understands that uh, this is the way He will polish our graces, bring us to depend more and more upon Him. And if you think about it at the end of the day, this is the only way He'll make you more like Jesus. He will not make you more like Jesus without some pretty heavy chiseling, will He? He'll not make your life remind anybody of the suffering, triumphant servant Jesus if He doesn't do some chiseling in you, because it's so often in our response to that that our relationship to Him grows. And that's what He's saying here. He cares enough for me to discipline me, and He's confident enough in His work in me and the gift of His Spirit to me, and the vision that He has for me, that through this He'll make me more and more like the Lord Jesus. And incidentally, speaking of the Lord Jesus, did you notice the hidden clue in these verses? Did you, were you so caught up in the sermon that you you missed the hidden clue. What's the hidden clue? Well, it's the hidden clue to which the answer is found at the end of Luke chapter 2, isn't it? Do you see that earlier on? In this pathway, verse 4, you will find favor in the sight of God and man. Remember what Luke tells us about the Lord Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 2, when there was all the fuss about him being in the temple, that he went down home and he was obedient to his father, adopted father Joseph and his mother Mary. And uh, he grew in wisdom. Oh, maybe he was reading the book of Proverbs. And in stature. Ah, and in favor with God and man. This is, at the end of the day, for us, reading it as, as people who have the New Testament, this is how God will make you like Jesus, because that's how God made Jesus like Jesus. And if it's the way He made Jesus like Jesus, we shouldn't think for a moment there's any other way at His disposal to make the likes of us like Jesus. So, we actually know more than the Father did, don't we? Because we've actually, we know what the end product of this is. It's being like Jesus. Why is that so important, my friends?
because listen to this. I believe this with all my heart. Nothing that isn't like Jesus can possibly last for eternity. Only what reflects Jesus will last for eternity in this church, in our lives, in our children. For those of you who are parents or are going to be parents, the only things in these beloved children you have that will last for all eternity will be what becomes like Jesus. It's this wise, and it's that important. And actually, at the end of the day, I wonder if the wee boy was smiling at the end of this. At the end of the day, this is what puts a smile into our lives and on our faces. Because we know, if anybody asks us, what's happening in your life? You know what? these meetings of ministers, that's what they sometimes ask, what's happening in your church? You know the best answer? Actually, we're all becoming like Jesus. That's what's happening in our church. And when someone asks you, what's happening in your life? It may take them a minute or two to recover from the answer, <laughs> but it's a terrific opportunity to witness, isn't it? Well, the best thing that's happening is I think I'm becoming more like Jesus. Well, May God bring that to pass. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You again tonight for Your Word and for this shared experience we have of, of going on a kind of adventure as we open it and as it's expounded to us and as Your Spirit takes Your Word and, and works it into each of our lives, applies it to each of our situations and ways nobody else knows. This is, this is what's so marvelous about being in a church where your Word is really preached and it's expounded and your Spirit helps us and, is, and He's with us, that absolutely none of us knows how the Spirit has applied the single exposition to so many lives. And it makes it so clear to us that it's your Word that does the work. It's not the, it's not the person who preaches. Uh, it's not that we are in, in a congregation where, where we're all listening. It's because you know what you're doing and because you want to make us more like Jesus. And so, we pray that you would help us to bind steadfast love, faithfulness, into our lives, to trust You entirely, to love You, to yield to whatever You do in our lives, because we want to yield to You and to say, Father, You're our Father. We know You will do everything well. So, whatever You want to do in our lives, take our lives because You gave them to us. We give them back to You. We want them to be Yours. We want to be like Jesus for all eternity, so that when He sees us, He'll see a reflection of Himself. And when we see one another, we'll see little miniature reflections of our wonderful Savior. We pray this in His name. Amen.